Greetings, church and friends of the church. Uh, this is the uh, scripture lesson and the sermon from the worship of the Valley Forge Presbyterian Church on August the 15th, 2021. Uh, this uh, reflection is, is the next in a series, uh, a seven-week series um, of reflections on the wisdom of the Apostle James. Uh, one of the earliest voices speaking in the world post-Jesus about what it meant to intentionally implement the teachings, the way, the politic of Jesus into the social order of the here and now, so that the world could and would be reshaped by an intentional Christianity. So in this series of considerations, uh, we've, we've uh, considered that we're not just, uh, as Christians, not just churchgoers, not just those who hear a word, but doers of the word. We've considered how real, honest to goodness, true Christian faith is not just about believing, but about belief animated in intentional, good, uh, Christ-like work. And how God's salvation comes to fruition and how we are revealed as those who are the faithful ones uh, in the mission of Christianity to transform the world not only when we believe, but when we work, when we do. And then in, in this uh, episode, we consider uh, James' teaching, caution, invitation, that Christians are those who intentionally avoid two common human tendencies, the tendencies of favoritism and judgment. So let's hear what James wrote. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and you say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you all? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He later writes, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. And so who then are you to judge your neighbor? Favoritism and judgment. First, favoritism. 
So James asks this question of those who would hear him. Brothers and sisters, with your acts of favoritism, do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus? He makes the rhetorical argument that there is no room in Christianity for favoritism, that it cannot exist in the presence of true, honest-to-goodness Christianity. In answering his own rhetorical question, James says that if we really fulfill the royal law, this core foundational law upon which all Christianity is supposed to be built, the law of loving the neighbor as the self, if we do that, if we really fulfill that in all things and above all things, then we do well. We are doing our Christianity correctly. But if we show partiality, then we reveal ourselves as those who are transgressors of this royal law. And so Christianity and favoritism do not go together. They're like oil and water. They're like me and a suntan. It's just never going to go together. So the word that James uses when he talks about favoritism, it's this Greek word. It's a compound word. And it most literally means to decide to accept someone's face. So the first part of this word means to accept with initiative and choice. And the emphasis is on the volition of the one doing the deciding and the accepting. And the second part is the face part. It literally means face. Uh, or figuratively, uh, it means the external appearance that reveals the truth of one's circumstances. So he uses the example in his letter of a rich person and a poor person. So if these two people enter your presence and the clothing and the, and the cleanliness of the face are, are these external things, external face revealing the, a larger reality of circumstances, and you say to the rich person, oh, please come sit here with me. And then to the poor person, you either say, you know, go sit over there, or I, I guess you can sit at my feet. He asks, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? That there's this sense that you belong together, but yet you've made these distinctions. And so aren't those evil thoughts? Aren't those unchristian thoughts? Well, maybe we know these distinctions between the rich and the poor that are still made today, not just uh, out in the world, but, but also in the church. This raises some, some tough questions for us to answer, but ones that lead to faithfulness. And so we're, we're grateful to ask them with humility. Questions like, has the institutional church tended to show favoritism toward those of means, those who are rich, because they can more easily pay the institutional bills? Questions like, have expectations like dress codes expecting people to show up in their Sunday best, expectations of tithing, expectations of people being able to afford participating in activities, like being able to afford food to bring to a potluck to share, the ability to afford a ticket to go on a bus trip or a theater trip, the ability to afford to go on a youth retreat. Have churches shown favoritism um, through these expectations? 
how else? How else might churches, beyond just the rich and the poor distinction, how, how else have churches shown favoritism? Have institutional churches shown favoritism toward men? Toward straight individuals and couples? Toward, you know, your conventional nuclear family? Have churches told adults come in and sit with us while they've told children and youth to, to go sit over there? Have churches leaned heavily on white, English-speaking, you only know these things if you are raised in a church like ours, kinds of music and worship traditions with favoritism toward that culture and that tradition? Have churches lived with favoritism toward Christians? Have churches lived with favoritism internally toward the members of their own congregations? And the big question that a lot of churches are needing to ask themselves now is how are our congregations showing favoritism toward those who have been vaccinated? So as congregations have, have done this, often with good intentions of trying to attract and engage the most people possible, the unintended consequence is that the church violated its ethic of the royal law of love for all neighbors. The poor family who could not afford clothes considered fitting for a Sunday morning, their faces were not accepted. Women seeking more than subjugated or secondary roles were not accepted. Gay persons and families that didn't fit the traditional mold were not accepted. Their faces were not accepted. People of color were not accepted with an intentional volition. And most recently, how many churches have been places where the unvaccinated don't feel welcome and safe and accepted? because of favoritism toward those who are vaccinated. So James asked the church to think with honesty and humility, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in the gospel of Jesus? And the answer to his rhetorical question is no. So he tells the recipients of his letter who have favored the rich over the poor that you have dishonored the poor that to draw this distinction among yourselves was an unchristian thing to do. So to the congregations that have favored, whether intentionally with animosity or antagonism or exclusion or unintentionally with good intentions that had these unintended consequences, rich over the poor, who have favored male over female, favored the straight community over the gay community, favored uh, the white community over the the black, brown, people of color community, the adult over the child, the right believer over the non-believer or the wrong kind of believer, the vaccinated over the unvaccinated. James' caution is that we dishonor those on the wrong side of our distinctions in favoritism. And we ought to have sought to love and to be loved by them just as much as everybody else. 
where he asks, has God not chosen them also to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Don't they also belong here with us? And the answer is yes. So in the eternal grace of God, um, every time the church has done this or is doing this now, we are forgiven for the ways that we have played favorites as congregations through the years. Thanks be to God. God doesn't Hold that against us. It's not going to knock down our buildings with a lightning bolt. But what do we do with that forgiveness? Do we take it for granted? Or will we accept and participate in the salvation and the reformation that God seeks to bring us as the church so that we're healed of this brokenness and we are made more whole in our Christianity? What would it look like for the church to mature intentionally beyond this favoritism that's just baked into our institutions. What would it look like to receive and to welcome the faces of the visitor, the child, the teen, the person of color, uh, people of every creed and gender and orientation with the same love that we receive and welcome the one with whom we've sat and worshiped for decades? What would it look like to ensure that the traditions and practices of all of our worship gatherings and all of our programs are as free of this inherent favoritism as possible so that our worship gatherings and our traditions communicate inherently to all that we're not seeking to play favorites and draw distinctions and that all belong. What would it look like to step out into our community as doers, uh, working, loving, and helping without any distinctions or favoritism? What would it look like for our Christian community to be inclusive of all people? A sea of faces that are different from one another, all accepting the faces of one another. Never again to be a sea of only similar faces who all fit one particular mold. God help us to rid ourselves of this temptation of favoritism. So the second temptation James, James mentions is judgment. He also cautions the church against this twin temptation of judgmentalism. So the word, the word he uses for judgment, the, the action of judging, uh, means to approve or to esteem one over another, to pronounce an opinion concerning right or wrong. So this is the next step away from God's intentions of unity away from this royal love of uh, ro royal law of love for neighbor. Um, the first step is to, is to draw a distinction and the next step is to make a judgment. So we notice the difference between visitor member and woman, adult child, black, white, gay, straight, rich, poor, right believer, wrong believer, whatever that distinction is. And then we make a judgment about the difference approving or esteeming one over the other, labeling one as good or right or better, and labeling the other as bad or wrong or worse. And then we favor the one we've judged as right or better while ignoring or marginalizing or antagonizing the one we've judged to be as wrong or less than. But James cautions the church that this is unchristian. This is not an act of doing Christianity correctly or faithfully. To judge and to speak evil or disparagingly about someone else 
to not accept their face based on the judgment call that we have made is unfaithful and unchristian. Do not speak evil against one another, he writes. For when you do, when you judge another person, you're actually speaking evil against and judging the royal law that we have from Christ. And if you are a judge of that law rather than a doer of that law, then you have no business being here, being there. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and that's not you. So who are you to judge your neighbor? God has revealed in this royal law given us in Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. God is the only lawgiver. We don't get to step in front of God and say, yes, but we say that we don't have to love those neighbors. We don't make the law. We don't judge the law. We are those who do the law of Jesus by loving our neighbors. When we judge a neighbor instead of loving and accepting them, we demonstrate that we have judged Christ's law of love to be inadequate. We act as though we can usurp God's authority and rule, that we can make ourselves the head of our church rather than Jesus. But we are not God. And so if judging others means that we are acting as God, James asks, who are you to judge your neighbor? We have no business doing it. And yet for far too long, the church has been the guiltiest party when it comes to judging neighbors. Whether those who have come into a sanctuary or a building of some sort and then left feeling judged, guilty, unworthy, unloved, weighed down. Or those who have been told on street corners, the pages of books, some by some voice on the TV screen or on the internet that they are somehow guilty, unworthy, unlovable by God. The Christians have been very unchristian as they have heaped judgment upon others. Too often blissfully unaware of their dissonance, blinded to their hypocrisy, deaf to this cry of James, who are you to judge your neighbor? As Trappist monk Thomas Merton wrote, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. This is not our business. In fact, it's nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love. And this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. Our job as Christians is to love anyone who comes through the doors of our buildings the, the, the waiting rooms of our Zoom meetings um, as we turn to worship God together and to love anyone we meet on the other side of our doors as we step out into the communities in which we live. So church and friends of the church, we are not in the business of drawing distinctions, judging, and playing favorites. We're in the business of loving and if we were honest, we ask ourselves, where do we see the favoritism that's cooked into our culture, that's a part of the way that we live our daily lives, both as congregations, where's the favoritism in the ways that congregations operate, but also as individuals and neighbors out in the world, all of the other weeks, hours of our week, and beyond our worship gatherings. How have 
these temptations, giving into these temptations of judgment and favoritism, how, how have their prevalence within our culture and within our ways contributed to and shaped the ways not only that we worship as communities of faith, but how are judgment and favoritism a part of the ways that we use our time throughout the week? The ways that we budget and use and spend our money? The way that we use the, our talents and the things that we're good at? The way that we speak up and use our voices, either literally, audibly, or our, our online social media voice? How do we see favoritism and judgment in the ways that we're advocating for and seeking to order our human life together in our municipalities, in our states, in our nation? How, how can we consider that favoritism and judgment don't only shape our religious lives, but also very much are a part of our individual lives. So may God help us all as we prayerfully and honestly consider this good word from James, how to do this word in the midst of our daily living, so that in all things we seek to do with love and not with favoritism and judgment. Take care. Be safe. Please wear a mask to protect the unvaccinated around and among you. If you haven't been vaccinated, please do. It's very safe and the science is, is clear. Um, and peace be to everybody.